The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. Red Kite Prayer is hosting its first ever event October 12th through 14th, 2018, the Red Kite Rendezvous. The two and a half day event will feature bikes from some of the industry's top frame builders, two gravel rides, some of the world's finest craft beers, which are brewed locally, plus enough food to make the pedaling fun. For more information or to register, go to redkiteprayer.com backslash store. From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pull. On this week's show, my guest is frame builder Mark Danucci. If you wanted to find the American who made the most profound impact on the ride of steel road bikes in the last 30 years, it would be hard to find a person more influential than Mark Danucci. As an engineer for specialized bicycle components, he was instrumental in creating the Steel LA road bike, which went on to be one of the most coveted racing bikes in the 1980s and 90s. He not only designed the bike itself, he was responsible for the tubing spec for that bike and the lugs. As a builder in the 1980s, even before he joined Specialized, he had been sourcing tubing and lugs from Japan, while most of his contemporaries were still working with European product for the simple reason that the Japanese products were better made. It was Danucci's quest for quality that led to the creation of specialized famed S-Works division, through which they designate the very best products they make. During his time there, he was responsible for everything from road bikes to tires to suspension designs. Bikes he designed have won everything from the mountain bike world championships to stages of the Tour de France. At a time when most American brands struggled to gain recognition overseas, Danucci's work was recognized as exemplary. Since his departure from Specialized, Danucci has worked for the aluminum producer Sapa and contracted his CAD skills out to a variety of clients. A few years ago, he set aside a summer to take what one industry source believes will be one of the final runs at a steel tube set that takes into account the best metallurgy, the best production practices, and the best engineering available. It was 2014's answer to the work he did to create the LA back in the 1980s. Most of the bigger manufacturers of tubing were scaling back what they offered, if not eliminating it outright, as True Temper did. So Danucci was swimming upstream. The tube set and matching lugs that emerged from his work were used to produce 74 frame sets for Specialized, built by the legendary Japanese manufacturer Toyo. Since then, the only builder on the planet working with that tube set is Mark Danucci. In that, Danucci generated all the CAD files for the tube diameters, 
wall thicknesses, butt lengths, heat treating, as well as all the lugs and brazons, when he brazes those components together in a frame, it represents the most completely controlled vision of a steel frame that any one builder has ever had the opportunity to create. As a builder these days, he is known for his deliberate output and uncompromising standards, and his skill set is so unparalleled, he has won Best in Show at the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, as well as an honorable mention for Best in Show, plus a host of awards for Best Lugged Construction. Because of the length of this conversation, we're going to split it into two parts, with the second part posting next week. With that, I'd like to welcome Mark Danucci to the poll. Mark, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are yeah. you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, for the listeners who don't know where you're located, talk to us a little bit about where Sisters is uh, in the great state of Oregon. Well, Bend is kind of right in the dead center of Oregon, and Sisters is sort of northeast, about mm-hmm. 20, 30 miles, or at least where my house is. It's uh, out in the boonies. <laughs> my close, that my it closest is. neighbor is uh, oh, a half a mile as the crow flies, and if you take our driveways, it's about a mile. Yeah. Uh, and the riding there, I mean, I didn't have much of a chance to ride when I visited you last year, but it looks like you've got some great riding right there. Yeah, uh, from roads to uh, a lot of sort of roads. Sort of roads, yes. Yeah, some of them are pretty rocky, and uh, you'd need really fat tires if you're going fast over it. Yeah, and some gravel roads, and you know everything. And the the soil's pretty powdery, so I guess if you're doing much gravel riding, you're probably going to need a, a fairly big tire to do some floating on that as well. Yeah, there's places here where uh, we just call it moon dust. <laughs> it's pretty. Uh, yeah, you need some flotation for sure. Yeah. Well, so let's go back in time now. You know, I think my audience pretty well knows you as a builder at this point and may have some awareness uh, of your history within the bike industry. Let's go back to the beginning. You started with Strawberry and Andy Newlands. You'd been a bike shop employee. And as you've described to me before, he walked in one day with basically tubes in hand. Uh, I think you said he'd just been to customs to pick up a couple of boxes of tubing. Why was it that that was the thing that you thought, you know, who needs the rest of this? I'm going to go off and build bicycle frames. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, We had, um, well, we'd looked at making bike frames and all we could get was chromoly tubing and Raleigh, it was in the middle of a bike boom, and Raleigh had some bikes that they sent us, and they hadn't brazed them together. They just tacked them. And uh, so the guy says, oh, if you take the parts off, we'll give you the frames for free. So, oh, there's some tapered tubing, you know, forks and chainstays and stuff. And it was, it was really nebulous, this whole thing. Maybe we should try making bikes. And when I saw Andy pulls up in this Volkswagen van, and it's kind of in the morning, the light's coming in, it's, really nice and these boxes are all nice wood with stenciled columbus on the side and it was like look at that you know there's the stuff the real stuff so it's like okay where do we get lugs and 
Andy was trying to import lugs and tubes and sell them as he is today. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, this is tangible. You know, you can you can taste it now. So I was good at drafting and stuff and skilled with my hands and felt confident we could figure it out. And <laughs> we knew nothing. <laughs> I think the, the first bike, I don't think the pedals would have even cleared the ground. The bottom bracket was probably so low. Okay, I guess, I guess we have to draft these things up. You know, and it was just a learning experience one step at a time. Now, when you first got started, you know, speaking about the bottom bracket being so low on that first bike, I'm aware that solid information was in reasonably short supply. So I'm wondering how much of your of your geometry was, you know, simply trying something versus, you know, did you, were you able to con uh, convincingly measure some existing bikes? And then what were you doing for a jig? Uh, we, we had a jig, a European something or other. And uh, we didn't know anything about the bikes. And then pretty soon we started finding out about 73 degrees parallel. And what does that mean? And, you know, you just start learning about the kind of normal frame geometries and you know we just copied those i suppose at first mm -hmm. uh i was racing on the track and the road and track bikes were a lot different than road bikes and some of the things they did was pretty cool and they weren't using those ideas on the road bikes and so we just kept trying things you know you just make a bike and try it and uh Pretty soon, you started finding out what you like. Wow! Uh, oh, and we should we should also. What year was this that you and Andy uh, first started producing frames under the Strawberry label? I think it might have been the spring of 1973. Okay. So about as early as, you know, most anyone other than Eisentrout or the Wastons were producing frames. I mean, certainly very early for the U.S. Yeah, like you were saying, you know, we didn't, the information transfer at that time was just non-existent. We had uh, competitive cycling or something came out once a month, and I think that was from the Bay Area, and that was a million miles away back <laughs> in those days, you know, and there was no... I remember the first time I saw a really nice European bike, I went, whoa, boy, that thing's beautiful. I think it was a Mozzie. And then when I first saw an Eisentrout, it just blew me away. I just went, wow, you got to be kidding. You can do that? That's awesome, you know. What was it about the Eisentrout that so captured your attention? Well, he, they, they, people really liked the way they rode, and he would use like a heavier down tube to try to stiffen up the down tube and then the handwork on there was beautiful and his bikes he had a few things he did that were kind of a trademark of his but you'd see him doing things just maybe he only did it on a few bikes you know something really cool mm -hmm. you know he, he would always try new things and you know they didn't have chrome on them and 
a bunch of fancy paint. They were just a beautiful straight-ahead bike. You know, it was pretty cool. Is that where you first saw lugs really filed so that the points were tapered, that sort of work? Kind of. Um, At the time, I didn't know mozzies were made by a million different people, but I knew a guy that bought a mozzie that was made for the Spanish team, and they pulled it out of production for him. He got it over in Italy or something. And uh, that thing had beautifully filed lugs and everything. The whole bike was really highly finished. It was beautiful. Mm. Wow. Now, you've told me that when Strawberry was first really a going concern, you were doing production frames, sometimes as many as five in a week. But then you also said that at some point you sort of changed directions and your the nature of your production was not something that was super commonly done, but you didn't really elaborate. Are we talking you began to do more differentiated models or you were doing more custom work? How did the strawberry business evolve? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the bikes that we were making would have like prune yacht lugs and they'd have a stamped out thing where the seat clamping bolt would go and they were just brazed up and pretty much like a lot of European bikes, you know, Motobacons or Peugeots or whatever. And making those bikes and selling them for, for wholesale was just a huge amount of work for the amount of money we got. So I thought, you know, what we had to do is raise our game and make the bike frames better and charge more for them and make a few less bikes. So it was a combination of wanting to improve the quality and make the workload a little bit more realistic. Mm -hmm. What was it you saw that you could do to improve the frames that you weren't already doing? Oh, just like the seat binder, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Mm -hmm. making sure that the seat tubes were perfectly reamed and everything was just done to a higher standard. The bikes weren't all that great back then, actually, most bikes. So, you know, there's a bunch of different four crowns on the market, and some of them were actually hollow, and if you took the time to work on those forks, you could have a lightweight fork that was stiff and did what it was supposed to do. And, you know, I don't know. You just, all the little details you look at and you just say, okay, well, that's not good enough. Let's do that better. Mm. Okay. You then went out on your own after some number of years with Strawberry. What sort of time frame was this? And then how many years did you build under your own name? Yeah, um... After Strawberry, there was a period of time there where I even looked at getting a job doing something besides bicycles. And I think I worked at Portland Music, maybe it was 1978 or something. The punk scene was starting to get going. Uh, yeah, and I fixed up guitars and stuff for about a year. And then uh, I think I w- went to work with Jim Murs for a while, yeah, oh, right. a couple, couple, three years, and then I got my own shop in the early 80s, and that's when I decided to make bikes 
surely in my style. Now, for, go ahead. Sorry. I think mm-hmm. I, I did that until around 1985, I think. Uh-huh. I think at the end of 1985, I was hired by Specialized. Okay. Now, before we get to Specialized, I want to ask a little bit more about you building under your own name. I mean, you not only mitered the tubes and brazed them into lugs, you had a phosphate dip for your frames, you did the graphics for your decals, you did the screens to make the decals, and even painted your frames yourself. Uh, I think we can safely say that that was unusual for any era of frame builder. And I'm curious to know, why did you want to take on so much? Well, I guess I just wanted the quality to be there in everything. And I was, you know, I I had studied color and art and stuff when I was a kid. And uh, they even had a book at the Portland Library that was one of 128 books that was made by some famous Bauhaus guy and showed you how to use color and I couldn't really get decals made in small quantities and have the color and stuff come out the way I wanted it to so that's why I started making my own decals mixing my own epoxy inks and and, uh, printing my own decals Uh, that was just you know part of it mixing my own paint colors and you know, I had the paint booth. I actually had a friend of mine working with me for about a year, mm-hmm. and he, he was good at painting. So that freed me up to do, you know, more work. We we would build wheels. We would do a little bit of frame repair, and we'd repaint people's bikes. It was a nice little shop, and it, it was in a... We had a kind of a little community going. It was pretty cool. It was... There wasn't really anybody else in Portland at the time building frames, and there weren't very many people on the West Coast even building frames Yeah, at that yeah. time. Yeah, that's for sure. And you were also racing a lot back then. I mean, you you were a pretty hot set of legs, as I understand it, you know, top tens at nationals. What were some of your big wins? What do, what do you still run your tongue over? Oh, I don't know. I got, <laughs> I went a Criterion one time. Um, it was a rectangle, two square blocks, and had the short leg was uphill on one side and downhill on the other, and then the long leg was two blocks long. And I realized that the only way you're going to win this race is to start the sprint on the opposite end of the track. And I went through a corner faster than I'd ever gone through a corner and they had the road all swept off and stuff. I barely missed the curb. And uh, I could feel Carl Lusenkamp breathing down my neck, and I cut him off in the corners, and I kind of shut him off at the finish line illegally. And uh, he was so stoked. And, you know, I had long hair and black socks. Back then it was white socks or no socks. And you had to have your hair two fingers above your eyebrows and all this stuff <laughs> so here I, I beat everybody in this race and Carl's beating his fists on the handlebars after the finish line he's going that was great that was great 
that was effing great, effing great. I go, Carl, hey, there's people out here with their lawn chairs and their kids and stuff, you know, and here, here's the long-haired guy telling this guy looks like he's in the Marines or something, telling him to clean up his mouth. And Carl, uh, Carl had, I don't think he ever got a gold in the sprints at the Nationals, but he always got a medal. Mm. Wow. That was fun. Neat. <laughs> Neat. It's nice to have someone that you beat actually be excited about how great the race was. That's that's telling. Yeah, he started calling me Pan Am Sam. He goes, come on, we're going to take you to the Olympics. you got to start training. I go, no, i got to work. I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> what a that choice. Oh, my gosh. Wow. But, you know, instead of uh, what races were, did I, I really get stoked on, I think the most fun I ever had, after all the miles of training and everything, you know, all the great scenery and everything. The most fun I ever had was touring. You just, you can go anywhere you want, and you don't know where you're going to be at the end of the day, and man, that's that was awesome. What was your favorite place you went? I mean, I'm, I expect that there were a lot of tens on that list, but, you know, if you could go back someplace right now, just be plopped down with a parachute, where would you go? Well, we did a ride from... Portland, through quite a bit of climbing in Oregon, and went to Sun Valley, Idaho, and the Sawtooth Mountains, and then we went down to, uh, we started to climb, we went down 395 and started to climb into Yosemite from Lee Vining. Oh, okay. And the, boy, that was, that was awesome. And, you know, you get up there at 10,000 feet, and, and you start going west out of the park there's some downhill places where you know you got a heavy bike and you're going 60 miles an hour and huge vistas you know it's awesome yeah yeah it's really nice that is a special area so then yeah. jim Mers stepped back into your life and snatched you up to work with him at specialized Give me a short list of some of the bikes that you worked on during that time and what your role was each of them. Well, they were making stump jumpers in Japan. And I think they were starting to think about rock hopper or something. Mm -hmm. They might have made a rock hopper in Taiwan at Giant. And... Uh, when I was there that first year, they had sold about 4,500 bikes, mountain bikes. And the Japanese bikes were nicely made. Uh, the Taiwan ones were really crude. And it was obvious that there was a big enough market that they were going to have to make bikes in Taiwan. So I guess just like... Uh, when we decided to make more expensive bikes at Strawberry, I, I looked at the bikes that were coming back damaged from Taiwan and just said, okay, I know how to fix this. Can I have a budget to do it? And they said, yeah, sure, go, you know, everything you got, throw it at it. So, you know, I came up with investment cast seat collars, and we put a butt on the outside of the seat tube for the first time up by the where the seat post goes in. Mm -hmm. Top two connect, and I designed dropouts and changed the fork rigs and the tube shapes, and you know just started stiffing them up instead of being some 
off-the-shelf factory bike, and Giant had the capability to do that. So, you know, uh, which bikes? I mean, at, at one point, I said, well, let's do a stop jumper that's better than these. You know, there's this Tongue Prestige tubing out there. And I was able to work with Hiro Tange, actually. He was a great guy. And we came up with some prototypes for this high-end stump jumper. And they said, oh, we can't call this a stump jumper. We have to have a new category for this. And that's where S-Works came from. Nice. So what what sort of year would that have been when, when the S-Works designation first began boy i don't know yeah because uh, i i mean it's been there around for almost as long as i've known the specialized brand uh goes back a ways eight maybe does that sound right <laughs> i don't know yeah i mean i i want to say 88 89 90 somewhere in there um i was working in bike shops then yeah I specialized dealers at that so uh, one of the important bikes that I want to talk about that you worked on was the Allay. To this day, dude, I run into people who owned one of those steel Allays from the 80s or the early 90s, and they always comment on how great that bike was. And your role, as I understand it, was really deep with that bike. You know, you you did the geometry, the tubing, the lugs, as complete a control as I can recall someone having on a bike at that time. What is your take on why that bike is so memorable? I don't know. I hear people saying that, too. They go, man, I wish I would have never sold that. And um, It just was kind of like my new bike. It's uh, an evolution of what was there in the market, and I saw that I could make improvements without increasing the weight. So, uh, you know, I made the chain stays 24 millimeters start diameter instead of 22.2 and got a good oval shape and good uh, tire clearance and stuff and those are now standard and you get them from anybody um yeah small diameter seat stays that were thin and we made the tubing a giant so you know you get a lighter gauge tube and the down tube was 30 millimeters instead of 28.6 Mm-hmm. And that stiffened it up a little bit. Um, you know, I'd already been working on carbon bikes and aluminum bikes, and Mike said, "Hey, why don't you make a steel bike?" I'm going, you know, we, Mike, we've been trying to emphasize these other materials, and he's like, "Well, steel's good, isn't it?" And I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "Okay, go for it." You know, <laughs> then you're just—he's a good businessman. He's pretty sharp. So, True. Yeah. 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 Now let's go back to the shop that you and Murray set up. Um, you said that in terms of steel work, you did lots of prototyping there, but then you also said you created the production jigs for doing the carbon fiber bikes. Why were those uh, epics being produced in the U.S.? Was there just no way to do them overseas? Yeah, I don't remember. Um... It might have just been, yeah, the, the, the quantity was probably too low, and maybe we didn't want to have the factories practicing on this kind of stuff. Um, 
and we wanted control to be able to change frame geometries and stuff like that whenever we thought it was beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really remember. We had steel lugs and titanium lugs on those bikes, and the tubing was produced in the, in the U.S., Southern California. And we, one of those bikes we made, uh, we used this stuff called pitch fiber, and it was used in satellites. And the tubing was $10,000 back then. And uh, that bike, I don't remember how much it weighed, but it was super light. Wow. And it was really stiff. Boy. Somebody, uh. somebody took it to a party one night. It was supposed to be locked in the R&D department. We couldn't figure out how they got it out. And they leaned it against the pile of bikes, and somebody dropped another mountain bike on it. And remember how the mountain bikes had the ball on the end of the brake lever? Mm-hmm. Well, that ball punched a hole in the top tube of this stuff. It was so thin. And the bike was still rideable, you know, because it, it was right in the middle of the t- length of the top tube. But, you know, it was just amazingly strong stuff. Mm. Wow. You weren't just an office guy with Specialized either, you know, and by office, I mean the shop that you were in for a lot of that. You spent a fair amount of time going to Asia and visiting factories. When you would go to Japan or Taiwan, talk to us about some of the various duties you had. Well, I'd try to get them to understand my design intent, and I'd work with the people in the factory, um... That was easy in Japan. At first in Taiwan, they said, you know, they thought I needed to be in the office because I was also involved with negotiating prices and all the delivery stuff and, you know, office work. But I'd, I'd say, hey, look, you know, I want to go out in the factory and see what's going on. And they'd go, oh, no, I don't think you want to go out there. It's hot and, you know, nobody speaks English. And, you know, I'd go out there and, Pretty soon, some of the factory guys would get invited out to dinner with us, and we just got a good rapport with the people in the factories, hmm. from from the office level to the worker out on the floor. And surprisingly, a lot of those people had enough English that we could talk about stuff. Hmm. I know that you were involved in working on a number of, uh, shall we say, problems that Specialized encountered from you know product recalls. Uh, you told me one time about uh, there was a tire issue. Tires were blowing off rims, and everybody was saying, it's the tire, it's the tire. And that's not really ultimately what you found. Talk to me about how you know, you'd know you go about investigating that stuff and you know some of the problems you did bump up against. Yeah, I was there at Specialized maybe a year, not very long. And uh, Specialized pretty much ruled the high-end tire market in those days and yeah they you know i had been using their tires on the bikes that i was making in portland and they they always fit really well on the rims and so i thought well there's got to be something wrong here the the guys that make the tires they make uh it's a belting company all these tire companies are belting companies they make things like timing belts for the overhead cam car engines and stuff Mm -hmm. so it has to be really precise and 
I knew there had to be a problem, so I made a tool to measure the diameter of the tires, a really nice tool, and the tires looked to be okay. So then I had to make a tool to measure the rims, figured out how to make that, and started measuring rims. And it looked like the Mavic rims, which had always been so wonderful, probably the best, they were coming in small. So I go to Sinyard and I said, hey, you know, what do I do about this? And he goes, well, tell Mavic to fix it. And I go, well, me? And he goes, yeah. So I start getting a hold of Mavic. You know, back in those days we had fax machines. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey, you guys are making your rims wrong. And they're like, no, we're not. <laughs> I go, well, yeah, they measure like this. And you know, you're probably cutting them off two and a half millimeters too short before you coil them or whatever and, you know, cut it out. And After a while, they said, okay, you're right. We did it for Wolber or somebody that had tires that were made in France, Michelin, who knows, to make their tires fit in our rims. And I said, no, no, you got to fit the international standard because we can't change our tires because then it won't fit on anyone else's rims and then the problem just gets bigger and... I was like, wow, that's a wake-up call here. Uh, I work for Specialized. I'm not just some little Joe Blow, and I actually have the power to do this. Wow. you know, <laughs> Yeah. Pretty cool. Wow. That's really something. Uh, and I can appreciate that it must be uncomfortable to think, you know, I, yeah, who am I? Why am I telling this big French company what to do? Yeah, someone I always had deep respect for, and I still do. That's a good company. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the other projects that you worked on for Specialized? I know there was a suspension, at least one suspension design in there. Yeah, um, they kind of goofed around, not really getting into the suspension market fast enough, and other guys were getting ahead of us. And finally, you know, they had me making sure that all the bread and butter bikes were secure, so their income would be secure. But I said, hey, you know, we got to get into this suspension bike thing. And uh, they let me do a bike that used aluminum extrusions that we would split part way and then bend. And that was an innovative thing. And that bike got Bike of the Year award from a couple of magazines, I think. And it looked... Specialized bikes looked like that bike for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, Is this during yeah. the era of the M2 alloy that you were working with? Yeah, I don't think that particular one was Metal Matrix. It was, maybe it was 6069. Okay. We had some really, 6069 is not available anymore, even though there's some alloys with that designation and I talked to the guy that invented it a couple of years ago and it's gone all the people that knew how to make it are gone and the factory's been torn down and it was made up here in Oregon on the Columbia River and the guy that designed it was a genius mm. he asked the uh, American Metals Association that designates numbers for aluminum what alloy number he could put on it and they said we don't know this 
this is a completely different alloy. You name it what you want. So he goes, okay, sixty sixty nine. <laughs> what was it about it that was so different? It's high strength and ductile. And normally oh. when the strength goes up, the ductility goes down. Right. And they had envisioned selling a lot of this stuff to replace the wood and railroad car floors. But that never happened. They thought they would be, you know, have a really good market for doing that. So why, I mean, even if they didn't hit that uh, target market, why did the stuff not catch on in a way that you would cause it to still be seen today? Well, the whole thing with producing aluminum is pounds. You want to have a lot of pounds of it. And, you know, they're talking thousands of pounds a day is what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And if that's just how the aluminum market is. And if it's small, you know, it's just the, it's too expensive to make it. Thanks to my guest, Mark Danucci for joining me on the poll. Drop by next week to hear part two of my interview with him. Earlier, he revealed to me the advice he gives to aspiring bike racers. Put your head down and go for it. To learn more about his work, you can visit DenucciCycles.com. There will be a link in our show notes at Red Kite Prayer. That's it for this episode of The Poll. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to RKP's other podcast, The Pace Line, co-hosted by Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick from Bicycling Magazine, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride.